All right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? We awake? We alive? Oh, we're here. Uh, well, good morning, guys. My name is Josh. Um, I am the pastor here. This is Omid. He is the worship leader here. Um, Omid's comment on the bunny suit is a real thing. He will, in fact, I bought it for him, so I know it's real. Um, also, fun fact, I tried to get him to play the entire set last Easter uh, in the bunny suit. That got nixed by our board because there are smart people on the board. But needless to say, he will appear in a bunny suit at some point, and I'm probably the most excited about this out of anyone here. So please be there on Easter. Um, it's going to be a blast. A couple of things to say about Easter. We are in a moment right now as a church where if you look around, like we're kind of full. Uh, so we're going to do some creative things to try and get people in here. So the only reason I say that is we still want you to invite all of your friends, all of your family, strangers off the street, whoever you can find uh, to fill this place up because it's a huge growth moment for us. Easter is statistically one of the only Sundays of the year that you can go to anybody and say, hey, do you want to come to this Easter service? It's Easter. There's going to be candy and there's going to be a guy in a bunny suit. Be here. <laughs> so it's, it's one of the only days of the year that we have that in our faith. And so I encourage you guys, invite, invite, invite. We're going to put some seats out here. There'll be extra lines. So we'll have room, but we really just want to like pack this place out and, uh, and celebrate and have a party. We're going to be talking all about resurrection, which is this big fancy Christian word. But really, at the heart of that, I want to talk about how the Easter story is something we have heard over and over and over again. So what do you do with a story that you've heard over and over and over again, and it almost seems like it could be dead? We want to resurrect the excitement and the wonder and the surprise that Easter is. So be here on Easter. That's going to be fun. Um, this morning, we are hopping through our series on uh, reconstruction, in which we are deconstructing things all over the place and then putting them back together. Because kind of the heart of this is that kind of the coolest thing you can do as a fun hipster Christian is take a story in the Bible and completely rip it to shreds. Or even take the Bible itself and completely rip it to shreds. Or even take the faith itself and completely rip it to shreds. And that's awesome. And you should be doing that. Those rhythms should happen in your life. Faith is like that. Like there are points that you just go like, huh. That doesn't make sense to me anymore. I want to kind of deconstruct that and figure out what it is. That's helpful. What's not helpful is when we deconstruct it and then we just leave it there, right? We tear down the barn with no plan to build it back up. Any person, I was about to say another word, person with a sledgehammer can come and bust down the barn, right? But it takes a special person that wants to rebuild it better than it was before. So that's what we're doing. And we're doing that uh, very locally. What we're doing is we're going through our infographic and we're saying, this is our initial plan as a church, at least for the last year and a half, this has been what we've wanted to accomplish. And it's our infographic. So you'll see my um, handy dandy artwork. Uh, we have an artist in residence, very talented. Her name is Bobby and I did these. So anyway, um, uh, we have gone through, where have we covered so far? We've done service. Um, and that was wonderful. And then we just finished our uh, period on mentorships and mentoring. We talked about wisdom for two weeks. And now I want to talk about podcasts. One, because we haven't posted one in two months. Uh, but other than that, I would like to talk about podcasts. Uh, and I would like to do that. Next week, we're going to actually talk about the medium of podcasts and how that's shifted and it's changed. Uh, the way that we learn, the way that we interact, all that kind of stuff. Your car ride, especially in LA, has shifted monumentally if you've gotten into podcasts. Um, and I want to talk about the medium of a sermon next week, which is going to be so fun because I think this is a art form that has kind of died away. The sermon is really like a beautiful expression and a beautiful art form and a, and a theatrical art form to kind of get a message across. So we're going to talk about how podcasting and sermons are related, all that kind of stuff. That happens next week. 
This week, I just want to focus on this idea of technology and how technology shapes our faith. Because then we'll get a full like sort of grounding in technology and then we'll move on to the podcasting thing next week. Um, but to talk about technology, let's, uh, let's first pray. So Lord, thank you so much uh, just for this space, for, for this church and for what you're doing uh, amongst us. I pray that we'd be acutely aware of the fact that um, you're in this space and that, uh, that we walk in here with all of the baggage of our, our week we walk in here with the baggage of news feeds. We walk in here with the baggage of all the stuff we absorb. Uh, and Lord, I pray that this could be a space that we could kind of take the stuff out of the bag, unpack it, look at it, um, and question if we really need it anymore. Uh, Lord, as we're going to talk about this morning, and I pray you guide us, um, the medium is everything, and we are what we behold. Amen. All right, so to begin, um, phones. So 79% of people who own a smartphone will check their phones within the first 15 minutes of waking up. And I thought that was a very generous number because the first thing I do is roll over, <laughs> click, right? Like you have that feeling and then you're scrolling and you go and then you're like, how did I just lose five minutes, right? You, it, the time disappears. Um, you will interact with your phone and businesses know this, especially app designers. You will interact with your phone 150 times a day on average. Some people are way more than that, some people are way less than that, but on average, 150 times. That's how many times you're pulling out, either check what time it is, or to check what time it is, or to put something into your calendar, and then you end up on Instagram, and it's two hours later. That's the idea, right? We interact with it 150 times. Some other stats here. Um, the same people that designed casinos in Las Vegas have been tapped to design things like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, things that you get that little push notification, it goes ding. That's the same exact technology that when you pull the lever on a slot machine, it goes ding, 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 ding. And our brains are hardwired to love it. We are like little children inside going, yay. <laughs> um, and uh, to give you an example of just how addictive this stuff is, we really need to look at the terminology that the actual businesses that promote this stuff really use and you are not a customer to your phone company. You are a user. Now, I don't really need to spell this out to you, but the only other people that call their clientele users <laughs> are not exactly street legal, right? So we have <laughs> terminology that even points to the fact that this stuff might be addictive and that we might be just a little bit hooked. And the most staggering thing I learned this week about phones is the fact that one third of Americans voted and said willingly that they would give up sex for their iPhone. If they were gonna take away their phone, they would literally say like, I'll get rid of sex instead. That's insane, people. <laughs> so, so we are in this crazy, crazy moment. 1.2 trillion photos were taken in 2017. And I'll do a little nerdy math thing like I did last week. I swear this is the last time I'll do this to you guys. But 1.2 trillion, do you know how long it would take just to count to one trillion? The answer is staggering. So considering you're looking at every single photo that was taken in 2017, which would be a nightmare, um, but if you're looking at every single photo that was taken in 2017, considering you're gonna spend like a second per photo, because we're not lingering on these bad boys, if you wanted to count to a trillion to figure out how long that would take, the answer is 31,000 years. 31,709 years. That is how long it would take you to absorb all of the pictures that we have taken. It kind of gives you pause and says like, maybe you don't need that picture of your lunch, right? <laughs> so it's safe to say that we're a little bit hooked on this, but that's okay. Because uh, the same powers that can be used for evil can actually be used for good. Nir Ayal is this guy, he wrote this book called Hooked, building, um, building habit forming 
uh, products. And basically what he said is the same neural pathways that are being like abused for things like Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that we get hooked to can also be used for things like weight loss, for things like fitness apps to get us healthy. They can help with memory stuff. I mean, it can be used in the right way. The problem is we're, we're, we're abusing it in different ways and people that are wanting to make money off of things usually go to the easiest bottom line, right? But there are such good examples of technology and here's the moment we're gonna take a shift from what would normally happen in church. So what would normally happen in church, especially the church environment that I grew up in, it's just me, group therapy guys, um, they would say, this is all bad, right? This technology thing is terrible, it's ruining lives, uh, and it's the same debate that we've had for years. When the TV came out, the TV is bad, right? And then we learned that there are actually good uses for all of these things if we can do them in a good way. And I'm not gonna argue that any of this stuff is bad. I think it is inherently good because at the, at the base level of creation, when we create, we wanna create things that are actually going to benefit us and that are good, right? So there's so much good that the internet is doing and there's so much good that technology is doing in our world but we, in spaces like this, tr tend to focus on the negative because the negative will always sell more seats. And that is actually very true. As soon as you name an enemy and you have an enemy, you're united against something. But this is something Jesus never did. He never named an enemy. In fact, he went so far as to say you should be loving your enemies. You should be loving your neighbors and your enemies, which is ironic because neighbors could be your enemies, <laughs> right? He's calling us to love past that. So that's what I would like to do. But here's, here's an example of how we have used um, technology in the past. Uh, I tried to figure out some really good technology that Christians have come up with. It turns out we haven't done a whole lot of good, um, but there is plenty, oh, plenty of awesome bad stuff. So let me show you this. This is a Christian video game called Spiritual Warfare. Now, I played this as a child, I, I, and so I knew exactly where to go. I was like, oh yeah, spiritual warfare video game. So I click it in. Um, he's not wearing pants. That's not the most disturbing part about this. Let's continue. Um, so this is the game, and it says, this is the first screen, and it says, you found the pear. It is your first fruit of the spirit. Use the A button to throw it. So this video game company is called Wisdom Tree, and it has put out some incredible titles, including Super 3D Noah's Ark, um, Bible Adventures, but this is, this is by far the best one. And their motto was, video games are inherently a violent creation, and we want to create something that is not violent. Now, if you're throwing the fruits of the spirit at people, it's just, I mean, call it what it is. You still have a gun in your hand. Anyway, so moving on, this is the next screen. So what you do, now all the drama is going to happen here up in the left. Um, you can kind of see it, but this is you, and that little pixel right there is the fruit of the spirit, the pear that you are throwing. And then up there is a knight, and you can't really see him, but there's a knight. And then this happens when the pear hits him. He turns into an ape-looking demon and flails around like this. And then right after that, he goes into a praying position, and then after that, he becomes a dove, and you collect that dove, meaning you killed him and saved his soul, and you collect him, and then they go up here, right? Yeah. Even better, this happens all in a, like, this looks like it's some tranquil thing. It's designed to be in New York City. This is in Central Park, because inherently cities are the most broken, evil places on Earth. So. This is a perfect example 
of what we have done with technology. We take it and we make it our own because we say, oh, well, let's create a bubble and let's create products and that creates a subculture. But what we have to realize is Jesus was not subcultural. He was countercultural. He was not trying to create a club where you could be in. He was trying to break the whole thing down and build something better, just like this thing in Reconstruction. Now, why did I show you pictures of a video game? Uh, also, quick note, I looked to see if I could find images of this, could not find images, so I had to, uh, I mean, unfortunately, buy these games. <laughs> so for $7.99 on Steam.com, you can own all of the Wisdom Tree things, and if you want them, I will gladly give you the code. It's a great time at the movies. Anyway, um, so why did I show you those images? Uh, because part of what I want to help us all understand is that technology is a medium, right? Technology is something we use to move life forward. And technology looks different in different places. You can pull out your phone and you can see technology. Or as I always say every Sunday, this is the biggest piece of technology we have at Resonate. It's a wooden box, right? But what does it do? It creates a space where you can put your prayer requests, where you can tithe, where you can, uh, just, where you can ask for help. That's what technology is. It's something that is available, but the medium is the message. This medium proclaims to you that I'm gonna open this box and I'm gonna pray for the prayer requests that are in it. Your phone's medium is insane, it is huge, and it can do so much. I remember the last time I was actually truly bored. It was 2008, and the second generation iPhone had came out, and I, I had to stand in line for like three hours to get that second generation iPhone, and I had my you know, little cool flip phone and I remember thinking, as I got the phone, I was like, I'll never be bored like that in line again. Isn't that weird? We are not bored the same way that we used to be. If we're in line or we're waiting, instantly phones come out, or you're, you're texting someone, or you're scrolling through images, you're just constantly filling yourself up. And then it creates this even weirder feeling where beyond boredom, there seems to be this lacking. We're not bored anymore, I just feel this, like, this lacking. Have you ever spent over 10 minutes on social media and then clicked it off, put it back in your pocket and gone, ah, <laughs> time well spent. No, right? We don't, we go, oh man, why did I do that? You know, like what, what, was, I, what was I doing? I was like eight pages deep in this person I don't even know, right? <laughs> that creates a lacking and not a boredom because see, boredom is actually really, really helpful. Some of the most creative things, some of the most creative technologies have come out of the fact that there was boredom and that your mind can actually do more work on the subconscious level than it can when you're just trying to grind it out. This is that phenomenon of shower thoughts. This is that phenomenon of taking a walk. When you're trying to like literally get a problem solved, you can't solve it, and you're, you're at dinner, or you're doing something like that you do, doesn't require the same brain power, and all of a sudden it pops in, right? When we are allowing ourselves space, we allow our minds to actually work the problem out, and it just it to us, which is incredible, but we're not really allowing that kind of space anymore because the medium has changed, right? Technology used to be something you had to approach, and more and more and more, technology is something that is approaching us, and it's unavoidable, and it's everywhere. The medium is everything. I'm going to say this so many times this morning. The medium is everything, and we are what we behold. What do you behold? That doesn't mean like what you see, like what you take in. That means like what you choose to hold on to. So this medium where I showed you the video game um, pictures, I was showing you images, right? Because if I tried to describe it to you, 
Uh, it might work, and it might be just as funny, but seeing that like little ape demon man was hilarious. So anyway, that, that sort of medium creates a different sort of message. We find this with podcasts. Podcasts and advertising are extremely effective because of the medium. And the medium with most podcasts is that the host of that podcast will read the same ad. And this goes back to like 1920s era radio stuff. But like when you hear a voice that you are familiar with and that you trust, and when they read that ad, it's going to work way better than when a random somebody comes on the screen and tries to sell you something, right? The medium matters so, so much. And the church has always sort of understood that, but we've kind of lost our way. So if you were to go into a very old church, I'm talking anything made before like the 1400s, which really does not exist here. But if you go to like some far off land and you find an old church, what you'll usually find is that there are images everywhere, like unescapable, and they are super dramatic and just they look like they look like they're loud, right? And they're unavoidable. You walk in and you're spinning around full 360, there's just images, 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 images everywhere. And another funny thing is you'll see that it is a giant cavernous space and that the pews, if you look at them very closely, often look a whole lot newer than anything else in that building. Now, number one, pews wear out over time, so you gotta change them. But the other thing is that a lot of those cathedrals were never designed to have pews in them in the first place. It was an empty, cavernous space in which you were standing and you would walk around for a group of people that likely did not know how to read. It would have been infuriating, right, to sit you down and read from the scripture and do that. Your mind worked differently. So they would read from the scripture and then they would create space and that church was open seven days a week for you to come in and experience the story through stained glass windows and through images. They all told the story of the gospel. It was an incredible moment in our history because what that did was it left a lot of room for wonder. If you wanted to read the Bible per se in the same way that we would, you would have to walk into a cathedral and wander the space and let it seep in and behold it, right? And then this really interesting thing happens. In 1450, 1440, uh, this printing press comes on the scene. And this is uh, a guy and he figures out that he can use a wine press uh, for something completely different because as we know, all good ideas come from wine. Anyway, he's, he's using the wine press and he figures out that he could put rows and rows and rows of perfectly typed letters and for the first time we have type and we can print it out in an insanely fast medium. And this changes the game completely because over just the next 50 to 100 years, people become literate and here's the crazy part, just like mirroring those lines on the page, the churches shift from going around and seeing all these images and beholding to creating pews just like the lines on those pages in which you would sit and you would absorb the gospel because now I can read this. And that's an insane time. They never had the power to do that. What an incredible moment. I'm looking at this like a Venn diagram of history. If you look like over here, you just have the images and no one, no one can read and they can't really do it for themselves. Not that great. And then over here where we can all read and we can all do it for ourselves, again, not that great, but this Venn diagram moment where the two are meshing and there are images to be held and word to be taken in is maybe the best we've ever gotten it as church because it leaves room for the mystery and it moves the story along because now we're empowered to take this in ourselves. We're empowered to like go like, oh, well, I've been reading this. What does this mean? 
That had never happened to a pastor before that. They could basically get up there and say whatever they want, <laughs> right? But now it's this collective thought and people are literally taking this stuff and they're taking it back to their Bibles and they're looking and they're reading. What a beautiful, beautiful moment. But I think the pendulum has swung a little too far to the idea of knowledge and all of that and we're missing a lot of the mystery. We need to pull back some of those images. That's one of the main reasons I love when Bobby paints for us is because what it, it opens us up to more than just me talking at you, right? Board. Now, so I put a little funny thought with that. Uh, I asked, I, I lead a chapel um, at a, a Lutheran church, but there's a, a school that meets in it. And uh, I, I always love talking uh, with the pastor. He's been in ministry for like 30 years. He's just this beautiful soul. And, um, and there's all of this imagery in that, that, that chapel. Like there's just these stained glass windows and there's, there's statues. And, and I, I asked for the first time, it's never really dawned on me, but I asked, I was like, I, you know, why, why do you have all of this stuff? Like, what, what is it that you hold on to in here? Um, and his answer was not because we can behold the image and the mystery can unfold in our hearts. It was simply, oh, that's for when people get bored with the sermon. <laughs> you just, you look around in the space. Now, if we are building boredom into the service, we have a problem, folks, right? We need to keep these images and we need to keep the word, but we need to be doing them better. There's an awful lot of laziness when it comes to just our faith. Just like, oh, that's what it is, boom. Well, ask why, dive deeper. Read that scripture and go, what is this? Pulls it to shreds. This is this whole idea of deconstruction and reconstruction, and it's immensely, immensely helpful. What the printing press did for us, unlike what we did with video games, is we let the printing press be the printing press. We didn't need a Christian version of the printing press. Right? We just needed it to do what it was going to do in our lives, and it completely disrupted everything. It changed the game. Disruption is this beautiful term, especially in tech companies, and Silicon Valley is obsessed with this term. But disruption is this idea that a, a product or an app or something like that can come on the scene and change the playing field completely. Like, in, in essence, create a new playing field. Like, Uber and Lyft did this with, I'm not calling taxis anymore, right? They disrupted that entire thing. If you remember uh, Napster, you remember the, the, like he used it. The first time you sat down and you used Napster, you're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like the game is changed. All of a sudden, the music you used to pay like $14 for in a physical store is available on your computer and you can just steal it. And no one's gonna know, <laughs> right? It, it was insane. It changed the entire game. And here's what I want to argue for us this morning. I think Jesus is the most disruptive force in the entire world. And he uses his own sort of technology. And keep with me on this. We're going to call this the technology of grace. Grace is probably the most disruptive thing we have in Christianity because it completely flips the idea on its head. Now, Jesus never uses the word grace. I find this very fascinating. Out of Jesus' mouth, he never says the word grace. Grace is used 131 times in the New Testament, and he doesn't say it once. What happens is he lives his life in such a way that afterwards, the people that are commenting on his life have to use grace that many times to describe what Jesus was doing. Just a quick sidebar, totally different sermon, but like what kind of word would they use for you after you are gone, right? Kind of creepy, right? <laughs> I hope it's something like grace. Anyway, 131 times. They can't, they can't get off this idea 
of grace. And what grace is, is this. And it, it's, it's tough because we use grace in a lot of ways. We could grace someone with your presence, right? You've graced them because you're there. Your physical presence is there. It's kind of a high view of yourself, but you get it. You can grace someone with your presence. Grace is also a verb and not just a noun. So when you grace someone with your presence, that's a verb, right? But the noun of grace is more like this. You are fully accepted just the way you are, and you are loved completely. That's grace. And when I say that so plainly, something must have just moved in your soul because we never get told that enough. You are loved completely, and you are completely accepted just the way you are. That's powerful stuff. And that's the message of Christianity. That's the message of Jesus. And yet we miss the mark so terribly, so often. When is the last time? Because if you ask yourself this, like I truly don't believe that most of the time, right? When is the last time that you walked into a party or any kind of social situation believing that you are fully accepted and loved, right? If you did, you would be a total, like, like you would have no arms crossed moment, no need to like have a cup of coffee or like food as a barrier between you and someone else, right? If you thought that you were actually truly loved and accepted, imagine the kind of life that you could lead just day to day in your interactions with people. When grace enters us and we truly hold on to that, it moves us to something much deeper and that is care. Because all of a sudden, if we believe that we are truly loved and accepted beyond all reasonable doubt, then it leads us to treat people like they are too. To treat people like they are actually loved. Grace is incredibly disruptive. Uh, Jesus has this amazing story in the Gospels. Um, he's hanging out in the temple. Ch- well, we, have the, we have the text here. Let me just go to that. Jesus went across to the Mount Olives, but he was uh, soon back in the temple again. Swarms of people came to him. He sat down and taught them. So pay attention to what scripture is doing here. That's painting a picture for you. You're getting a mental picture of where they're at. Here's the scene. Here are the players, right? Okay, and then the religious scholars and Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. So someone has disrupted the moment, right? Jesus is having a casual calm teaching in the temple. And then the Pharisees, who are always just out, like, if this is a cartoon, like, there are those little, like, thieves that are coming in, right? They're always trying to disrupt what Jesus is doing. And it looks like that, but you have to give these guys a little bit more credit. To them, this is the tradition that they grew up in and they love so deeply And some of the stuff that Jesus is saying is outright different than what they grew up with and they were ready for. And the Pharisees later move on because the Pharisees, the interesting thing about a Pharisee is they would never be in the temple in Jerusalem. The very definition of a Pharisee was that it was outside that space and they were sort of the quote unquote leaders of these little temples that are later called synagogues and these Pharisees are later called rabbis and they invent Jewish mysticism. So they go all the way from like these like hardcore, like this is what it is to like Jewish mysticism, which if you read Jewish mysticism, it's like Buddhist. It's just like everything belongs, man. Like it's, it's way over here. So they experience an extreme shift in the way that they believe over the course of history. That's something very interesting to pay attention to as we look at them in this mode in the Jesus story. This is just a part of where they're at. And Jesus is loving them right in that moment. We always point to the fact that Jesus talks with sinners and he eats with uh, uh, like tax collectors and just the worst types of people, right? And we love that. We're like, yeah, Jesus, go get them. But then he also ate with the Pharisees. He was also at that table. He was loving both 
sides, and that must have driven both of them crazy, <laughs> right? The tax collectors and the sinners are like, man, I thought you were for us. And then the Pharisees going like, I thought you were for us. Like, and he's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to keep hopping back and forth. I'm going to love you right where you are. That's the interesting thing about Jesus. So anyway, the Pharisees are trying to catch him, right? They're trying to see this is a test. They're like, Jesus, what are you going to do? They lead in this room, this woman who's been accused of adultery. Okay, you probably all read this, but I'll just read it. Uh, they stood in her plain sight of everyone and said, teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law, this is important, Moses in the law, that's like a double, like, don't you get it? Obvious, like Moses is the key figure and the law is the key thing that he came out with. So they're going tradition, tradition. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. A little harsh, what do you say? Uh, moving on to the next slide there, dude, thank you. Uh, they were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him, we covered that. Uh, so Jesus bent down. This is the most fascinating. Just picture an old spaghetti western, and Jesus has just been, like, challenged, and he just goes like this, just takes a knee, and just starts drawing in the ground. It's just, it's beautiful guerrilla theater type stuff. It's amazing, and it's totally wild that he would do that. Anyway, writes with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him. He straightened up and said, the sinless one among you, you go first. Throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone. Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? No one, master. Neither do I, said Jesus. Go on your way. From now on, don't sin. Uh, there's a couple things to pay attention to here, but the most is the disruption that he brought in that moment. Because they come and they say, Moses law. So they're saying tradition, tradition, right? Here's our playing field. We're asking you a question about tradition. And Jesus completely flips the script and uses this technology of grace to disrupt that moment so that they could no longer be asking about the law because now they have to look at the people. This is Jesus saying, I love you more than the law, which is really, really outrageous for this moment. But here's the, here's, the, here's the most amazing thing. These Pharisees who were like just the most hardcore, like this is the way that it is. This is a moment where grace actually changes their mind. I don't see this story happening the same way in 2018, where that group would literally put down the rocks and walk away, realizing, oh, he's got a point. Just on both sides, and whatever side you're on, you're thinking it's your side. It's probably not, right? What, in what way would we ever change our minds that dramatically in response to a human being? I think that's just unbelievable of the Pharisees, and we should honestly do a better job of loving them because that moment is like, wow, guys, to humble yourself and to say, yeah, I'll let that grace win is pretty amazing. We have to let grace win, but it's being muted. We can't even hear the grace because of a little thing called pride. And pride says, throw the rock anyway, because you're right. Prove him wrong. The grace says, put down the rock and change. And now what's even more remarkable is that the woman is the last one to leave. If you're in this moment and you're about to be stoned to death and you get a hall pass, 
wouldn't you be out the fastest? Like as soon as that first person drops a rock, you're like, okay, I'm out, like just zoom, right? But she lingers there, and this, this is where we can really learn something. She lingers there because she too believes that she had done something worthy of this. She was fully convinced that my punishment is still coming. And even worse, she's fully convinced that my punishment is still coming and Jesus is the only one left to carry it out. And when he arises, he does something remarkable and he treats her with dignity and humanity and says, you're free, girl. I'm not going to condemn you either. You could even argue that the only sin that this lady had in this moment was the fact that she didn't believe that she was free to go. That she didn't believe that God was that big and for, could forgive that crazy. That's enormous. Grace always disrupts. Jesus essentially parks a Tesla in the horse and buggy show, right? He's bringing a completely new technology and this is in the temple, which is like the main stage for everything. You couldn't pick a more political and more loud place to be. This would be like if he's like literally on the steps of, of the White House on, on Facebook Live, like doing this. It's, it's a huge stage. And this is the way he chooses to react. And there's other people in the room, too. We always forget, we think these all happen in a bubble, but you have to picture each one of these stories happening in a already functioning temple. And more people are seeing this going, whoa, <laughs> he just, he just like flipped it on the Pharisees. Nobody does that, right? It's disruptive. That's what faith does to us. And I think there's, there's just, there's so much we're missing as an institution to treat people with that kind of love and dignity and to say, no, you really are fully accepted and you really are loved. That's not often the message. We get very good about, well, if you do this, this, and this, and this, then you're welcome to come to a small group. When the story is always, always much bigger, we have to start looking at the church as a vehicle for care. When church is at its best, it is caring for those around it. Note that terminology too, around it, not just the people that are in this space, but around it. When I was, um, I was probably like 19 or, yeah, about 19. Um, my dad, so living at home, sleeping on the couch in the garage. Um, my dad comes down the stairs uh, and he wakes me up. And there's just, there's, uh, I've never seen my dad like this before. There's, there were tears welling up in his eyes. Um, and you know that feeling where like the one who's supposed to be the strong one is about to break and you're like, oh, if you go, I'm going down hard <laughs> uh, for no reason. I don't even know what you're crying about yet. Um, he's, he's got these tears that are welled up in his eyes uh, and he can't really get, the words out. Um, all I heard was uh, Dieter has had a stroke. And I didn't, I couldn't comprehend what that meant. Dieter was um, a guy named Dieter Zander, who's a worship leader at my dad's church and also a mentor of mine and his sons played in my band in high school. I spent every weekend of my high school career in the Zander home, either playing music, having dinner, doing something. And he taught us all how to play music and how to like actually listen to each other. Just a fantastic mentor in my life. Um, and one of my dad's best friends. And, uh, and he had had a stroke, and he had a bad, bad stroke. And so I immediately call his two sons that I know, and I'm like, where are you? Kyle is off at school, so we had to go and uh, pick him up from the airport. 
uh, we drive over and we're in the hospital and we see Dieter and Dieter was the kind of guy who would go for a run every day at 5 a.m. He's like this very fit, just like electric personality. And there he was, strapped up with all of these tubes in his body, sustaining his life. And I had to witness his sons go into that room and see their father in this state. And I was sitting there, we're, we're in, in the waiting room, there's a, a collective of us because Dieter's just so loved in the community that we were at that just like all these people just kept swarming in. And we learned that there was maybe like a 25% chance that he was gonna come out of this. It was just really dark. And I, I remember thinking like, how do you even walk with a friend through this? I mean, how do you even like begin to shape words to comfort or words necessary? Anyway, we, we decided to get three churches all around uh, our, our county, um, Marin County, because Marin County only has like three churches. But anyway, um, we got all the churches around, and we said we're going to hold a prayer meeting uh, for Dieter uh, tonight, like that night. And it was already like, you know, it was like three in the afternoon when this idea even sprang up. Um, and I remember thinking that this is, this is kind of, it's, it's a nice thought, but I don't, I don't understand how this is going to help. And I remember asking my dad, I went, like, I, I don't get it. If, uh, you know, if God has a plan, quote, unquote, and this must be a part of his plan, quote, unquote, what is prayer going to even do in this situation? And he didn't pull this from the Bible, and I can't point it into scripture, but he just frankly said, Josh, that's not the way it works. Prayer changes God's mind. And so three churches come together. It's packed. There are hundreds of people in this room, and they pray for Dieter. And I remember feeling this profound, like, I've never seen anything like this before moment. Remember when you first picked up a tablet or an iPhone and you flipped it and it went with it? And you were like, Whoa, it can do that? <laughs> That's literally what I thought about the church in that moment. Someone had taken it and flipped it upside down and it went with it. And I went, it can do this? This, the church can do this? And to culminate the story and not leave you on edge, they prayed and Dieter came out of that coma. And I don't know if that was to do with prayer. I don't know. I can't point to any of it. All I'll say is that we did it and that happened. And it's remarkable. And I, lo I, I love telling this story. But the, the most I got out of this story was the fact that churches were able to come together, which is something I had never seen across denominational lines, across theology differences, they came together to pray and care for this family. They also collectively rose $250,000 to give to Dieter and his family so that they could get through this crazy time. The church did that. That's where we're at our best, guys. When we're caring and we're doing it together. And I want to let you know this right now, whether it's your first week here or you've been here for all the years that we've been around, that kind of technology is available to you right now. If you need care for anything, we are here. And we are a community that does that exceedingly well because we really believe this grace stuff. And we really believe this guy, Jesus. It's all there. But a lot of times you don't really experience that care and a lot of times you kind of experience some burn and then when you feel the burn you're often able to burn everything around you you're able to burn the whole thing to the ground and to do that we need to we need to kind of shift our thinking and let this grace stuff take over so that we can rebuild
um, there's this fabulous uh, story in our church history, not our church history, but church history just in general. Um, we don't know, so Abraham is this guy in the Bible, and he's in the beginning of the Bible, he's in a book called Genesis, and God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, and we, do we have that verse? God says, to Abraham, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, what's really profound about this is that Abraham is a very old man when this happens. He's not like some spring chicken. This isn't like the, you're going off to college thing. This is like, no man, I'm really settled in here. Um, but he does, and he goes. And Abraham's story kicks off the entire story of scripture. Everything from then on out is where the Bible leads, right? But here's the really interesting thing. As, as theologians and scholars and old church leaders were trying to figure out this story, this profound sort of like missing link was discovered, which is that we don't really know how Abraham discovered God, right? We just hear and we assume that he's known God all his life, but we just hear God ask him this question and he responds, look at his split and goes for it. The reason that that's actually interesting is that there's a possibility that Abraham did not know God before this and heard his voice for the first time and decided to respond, right? So like anything in theology, if you discover missing link, there are gonna be a thousand people rushing to fill that void, even though we could just keep it mystery and it'd be fine. No, you have people that are really paid to think and they were thinking up stories to try and find this missing link. And all of them, you know, it's like, it, it's not even, it's like hearsay, most of it. Like, why, why are we even talking about this, right? Now, except for one rabbi who was exceedingly genius because he described it like this. He said, Abraham could be compared to a man who's going from place to place and he sees a palace that's on fire. Or he actually uses this word called dolakat. Dolakat. I'm not saying that right, but that's my best shot at it. Dolakat, right? So it's, he sees this man and he says it's on fire and the man pops his head out of the building, or I'm sorry, he goes, it, it's on fire, and he says, surely, is there no one who owns this place? Like, this place is going, it, does anybody own this? And this man pops his head out the window and says, I am in charge of this, and then pops his head back in. Now, strange story to describe how Abraham could encounter God, but the reason that it worked for the first time in history and people ran with it was because of this word, delicut, which means in flames, but it also means full of light. So you could read that story and you could read the story and it could be a man encounters a palace that's up in flames and asks if anybody owns this thing. The palace is like our world around us. This is all burning. Is no one responsible for this? And then that's when God appears to Abraham. Or the story can be read, they encountered a palace which is beaming and full of light. And the glory was shining all around and the man asked this profound question, who is responsible for that? And the owner pops his head out and says, I am. We can be people that can walk through life and proclaim that the palace is on fire, or we can be people that walk through life and proclaim that the palace is full of light. And we can find God in both. It's just how we choose to read the story how we choose to interact with the story, how we choose to get there. And I'll end with this. Uh, Fred McFeely Rogers, which is Mr. Rogers, and his, his middle name really is McFeely. Um, I'm certainly glad he read with Mr. Rogers. Um, Mr. Rogers, uh, I have a special place in my heart for Mr. Rogers. I've used him in sermons before. My, my aunt actually uh, had the great privilege of working on 
Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and um, she was responsible for putting his shoes out um, every, every day and every episode. And so I grew up just hearing stories. And what's remarkable about the stories that you'll hear about this man is that like, he was really the real deal on screen and off screen. He just presented and exuded this extreme kindness and care. The whole point of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was it, in his own words, he said, we're striving to create a neighborhood expression of care that children can hold on to and take into their lives. He also said the world is an exceedingly tough place and that's just the way that it is, but we can let them know that in an early age in a caring environment and have them carry through. And Fred Rogers, it's like the um, 60s or 70s, and they're about to uh, pull funding. Nixon's the president, and he says, there's $20 million we're about to give to public broadcasting. Let's cut that in half. We don't need that. Uh, and public broadcasting needed someone to go and talk to Congress to try to convince them to keep their funding. This is only about two years after syndication that Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood had made it on to the air, and they call up Fred Rogers, Fred McFeely Rogers, as their guy to go to the court and to actually proclaim the case. And when he starts, the judge, there's, there's a video of this, it's fantastic, it's gone viral several times, you can probably find it, just search Mr. Rogers um, and judge. Uh, the judge is immediately curt, his mind is made up, and he's like, all right, state your case. Like, like in a way to say just like, whatever you say here, the funding's getting cut. And Mr. Rogers very slowly takes the microphone as only Mr. Rogers could, and then starts speaking extremely slowly <laughs> towards this very curt, fast-angled judge. And basically he says to him, we need shows and spaces like this because this world is broken and it's fallen apart and kids need to understand that there's someone there who cares for them. Every end of that program, he would stare into the screen as if he was looking you right in the face and he would say, I care about you. I'm so glad you're alive. I'm so glad you're in this world. And you would, you would literally see that. And I, I had to watch these YouTube, had to watch, I watched these YouTube videos this week and I was just like all weepy eyed, like someone loves me, like Mr. Rogers. And he, he finishes his speech to this judge like this. He says, would you mind if I read you uh, just the words to one of my songs? He was also, he would write all the songs for the program and write all the scripts over almost four decades worth. Anyway, here it is. He says, this, this is why we need this show. And this is what I proclaim to the kids almost every week. And I think with our view of technology, we could really use this in our lives. He says, what do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag? See how fast you can go. It's great to be able to stop when you've planned the thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to can stop when I wish, I can stop, stop, any time, and what a good feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can, for a girl can someday be a woman, and a boy can someday be a man. He literally stops this, looks up, and the judge says, you just got yourself the $20 million. Now that the profoundly cool thing about this 
is that Mr. Rogers seems to be pulling from some sort of well, right? This deep tradition and well. And he was also a Presbyterian pastor. I think this man truly understood what grace was and as a result would end his program by telling him, I care about you. We need way more of that and way less of what is going on in our churches today. We need spaces where we can literally look people in the face and say, I really do care about you. You are a human being and I love you. And that's the thing about grace is you can't earn it and you can't lose it. And we're leaning into that. May we be a space that truly, truly cares. And may we take that out into our community. Amen. Um, let's pray. Lord God, I am uh, I'm so grateful for places that we can exude care and exude your love. Um, and I'm thankful that you allow us to live in that tension and to, to grab more of that beauty and see the world full of light, even though a lot of it looks like it is totally inflamed. And we just thank you, thank you, thank you for the week that's coming ahead. Amen.